Welcome to the HCC Podcast. Our mission is to nurture love for God, love for self, and love for others as the highest goal of humanity. May the following message nurture that love in your life. And remember, you're always welcome at HCC. It's a perfect church for less than perfect people. Peace. I need to bring caution to you regarding our annual theme, It Can Only Be Good. I love that theme, It Can Only Be Good. I love it. However, there is a danger in it. And the danger is is that the neat little phrase taken from Romans 8.28 could foster or imply a Pollyanna-type mindset that is so heavenly-minded, it's no earthly good. What is a Pollyanna? A Pollyanna is an excessively or blindly optimistic person. Have you ever met a Christian Pollyanna? You might be sitting next to one, I'm not sure. But the reality is that a Christian Pollyanna is someone that never ever allows for any struggle or problem in life and won't allow anyone else to do that either. Like, if you're, if you're you know, having a reaction to the COVID vaccine or something along those lines and you're not feeling well and they say, oh, no, 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 that, that's, not, that's not true. You don't say that. You don't speak those things out loud. You just keep confessing and you just keep on and on. And no, you can never have a problem. You can never be in trouble. You can never be sad. You can never cry. You can never be grieving because everything is always wonderful in the Pollyanna's world. Well... The reality is that sometimes life stinks. Is that good theology? Sometimes life stinks. Listen to Paul, listen to the Apostle Paul from the very same chapter in Romans 8 talk about how life can stink. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Now push pause right there. Paul is saying, you're likely to experience this stuff. These things are going to happen in this broken world and in this broken life in which we live. You will struggle with these and many other varied trials and tribulations and troubles and problems. So yes, sometimes life really, really stinks. But he follows that with this phrase. Can anything separate us from the love of God? And he lists all these troubles and problems. No, no. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Now, Paul is just parroting Jesus. That's what he's doing. Paul is rephrasing, paraphrasing Jesus, who promised that in this world, you and I will have trouble. That's what Jesus said. Yet Jesus followed that honest promise of trouble with the equal promise of trust that in the trouble you can trust him to shepherd you through the bad to the good that even though you have trouble can anything separate you from the love of God no Jesus said in this world you will have trouble however in all of the bad 
The shepherd is there to shepherd you through to the good. Yes, life stinks sometimes. That's a fact. Yet the opposite of a Pollyanna is no good either, and that's the pessimist. What is a pessimist? A pessimist is an excessively or blindly negative person. An excessively or blindly negative person. Ever meet a person like this? Oh, now, now you're really perking up. <laughs> like, oh, yes, I have met people like this. Well, I don't, I don't want to put anybody's picture up, but you might recognize this person. So let's take a look at these slides. Yeah, it could be worse. Not sure how, but it could be. I'm trying to do my Eeyore presentation. Good morning, if it is a good morning, which I doubt. I'd look on the bright side, if I could find it. Can you hear Eeyore whining? You know, can you just hear that? Can you hear people in your life? Can you hear yourself? Can you hear yourself in that? Life lived in the ditches of Pollyanna or pessimism is never the way of Jesus. Jesus calls us to balance in the middle. He calls us to balance in the middle. The Messiah is the great mediator, inviting all of us out of a Pollyanna or pessimistic ditch into the balance of the messianic middle. My goodness, I don't know if anyone on social media is in the middle. Everyone seems to be in the ditches on social media. We tend to live our lives bouncing around. When you're watching the news, be very, very clear what ditch they're in. When you're reading articles, when you're getting podcasts, when you're evaluating a speaker, just recognize what ditch they are in. They may be in the Pollyanna ditch or they may be in the pessimistic ditch. You've got to recognize that the Messiah is bringing both to the middle. Look into the mirror of Scripture. Do you live your life? Do I live my life in the Pollyanna or pessimistic ditch? Why live in that ditch? We tend to get comfortable there. We tend to get a feeling, a sense of familiarity in that ditch. And we begin living in the habit, in the routine of interpreting everything in either a Pollyanna or a pessimistic way. So no matter what happens, we end up filtering it, working it into a particular paradigm of thinking. Whether it be pessimistic or Pollyanna, we often are living in that ditch. We get in that ditch and we tend to just stay in it because it's a struggle to get back up into the middle. I don't know if you've ever done this or not, riding a bike where you get off the sidewalk into a rut. It's easy to get into the rut. It's a little hard to jerk it out of the rut. It's difficult. Pastor Bowman used to say, what's a rut? A rut is a grave with the ends knocked out. It's where you die. And so no matter what ditch you're in, whether you're pretending the Pollyanna world or you're 
pretending the ultimate pessimistic world. The question is, how are we living? Are we living a biblical balance between Pollyanna and pessimism? Because that's what we're after. When we think of Proverbs 11.1, it teaches us that, uh, that the Lord loves balance. He loves equity. He loves the balance which is in the middle. But what happens when the world is unbalanced? What happens when your life seems unbalanced or unfair? Has God become unbalanced? Has God lost his sense of fairness or justice? That's a good and a reasonable question. This question of fairness is why we have the book of Job. In the Bible, you might remember that classic book of Job and all the troubles and problems and difficulties that Job had and how that he wrestled with fairness, he wrestled with justice, he struggled through getting out of the ditch and into the middle. And that's what the book of Job is all about. And so take a moment, watch this video, and let's be reminded by the message of Job. There are three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. The first, Proverbs, showed us that God is wise and just. Yeah, we learned that God has ordered the world so that it's fair. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. In other words, you get what you deserve. But then we meet Ecclesiastes who observes, well, people don't always get what they deserve. Uh, yeah, he said the world isn't always fair, that life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like smoke. And this makes you wonder, okay, well, is God wise and just? Exactly. And so it's that question that is being explored in the final book of wisdom, Job. All right, let's dive in. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan. Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters one and two. But then in chapter 3, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 
34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person. And God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is, and he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered, and yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends, because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment. And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently, God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. No matter what comes, good or bad, you can trust God's wisdom. Paul took the very dense, very complex book of Job and condensed it into one verse, Romans 8.28. That God is indeed working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God does not in this context of Job or Romans in Paul's theology attempt to give us excuses, attempt to give us reasons 
don't you understand? I only did this because of this, and I did that because of this, and don't you understand? Because God knows we will never, ever, ever understand. So he calls us to trust. Job is an amazing story about the brokenness of this world and how we live in it. Job is taught by God that at any point in life, and by God teaching Job, God is teaching us that at any point in life, a person will have a very limited perspective. And life from that perspective will often seem unfair because the circumstances of that moment, those current circumstances, will be uncomfortable. And we don't like discomfort. And we somehow think some way we're being punished or judged or rewarded. We often think when we're suffering that God is judging and punishing us. But when we're living in comfort and peace, we often think, I did this. It's just how we do it. We judge God when things are going wrong and we judge ourselves when things are going right. The key is to cultivate trust in God in spite of the circumstances. This is the bigger picture that you have no way of seeing. You or I cannot see what God sees, just like Job. God's big picture for you is not your present bad, it's your eternal good. Listen carefully to that. God's big picture for you is not your present bad, it's your eternal good. We can only see a small part of our life at any time, and Christian faith is a life of nurturing and cultivating, trusting God with all the parts that you or I can't see. Let me say that again. Christian faith is a life of trusting God with all of the parts that you can't see. Trusting God that your life is a divine conspiracy for good is a learned behavior. It must be developed in real time, in real life. No classroom setting can train you to trust God. We find that out in the book of Job. No classroom training can teach you to trust God. It's real life. It's on-the-job training. Has anyone ever had that? Well, don't worry about the class the best training is on-the-job training. You can come and sit with me, and I'll teach you systematic theology. I'll teach you all about the, the, the contrast between trauma and theodicy and the realities of the middle. If you're like, what is a theodicy? What is he talking about? Well, that's the point. Most of you are living in a theodicy right now, the struggle between good and evil you're struggling between comfort and, and conviction or comfort and pain. You're struggling between that. That's the tension that we all feel. It's the tension that Job felt. It's the tension that Paul felt. It's the tension that Jesus felt. And it's the on-the-job experience of living in a broken world as a broken person with a full and complete God. 
That is the on-the-job training experience that we need. So take it from Job, take it from Paul and your pastor. Trusting that God is good, even when it's bad, is a learned behavior. It will not just happen. You will not get lucky trusting God. You will need to develop that trust, to nurture that trust. The peace that comes from trusting God is good even when life is bad will never develop in your soul unless you practice this principle of trusting God day in and day out. And that is the on-the-job training that apprenticing Jesus is all about. That every day when you wake up in the morning to when you retire in the evening, you are consistently working a soul health plan to nurture and develop trust in you at the deepest levels, even when things are going well or when things are going bad and everything in between. You are nurturing, conditioning, developing trust in God. How does that happen? It's the same way that you would train in any aspect or area of life. If you're going to get a computer certification in IT, you have to practice it. Does anybody remember basic computer language? The evil that it was? Yes. So, or, or, or if you look at HTML, you know, coding for websites. Yeah, you can, you can read a book, but can you do it? Do you know, uh, you can read a book on um, changing or timing a vehicle. We don't time vehicles anymore. They're all computerized. But remember when we time vehicles? You can read a book about it. I can read a book about laser eye surgery. If you'd like to come over, I've got a laser pointer, and I'll give it a whirl. You just pay. I'll discount. I, I promise it's going to be cheaper with me than with an eye doctor. Are you into that? You're like, no, you're crazy. I would never do that. Why would I do that? Why would anyone trust you that they can trust God if they don't see trust in your life? Why would anyone ever trust you as a Christian if you seem not to be able to trust God? Why, why, is this God trustworthy? Is this God not trustworthy? When we don't practice trustworthiness every day, all day long, working day in and day out to set reminders in our phone to trust God, to set an understanding in our devotional life, our prayer life. Many people have a prayer life, meaning they might schedule a little bit or you know, in passing have a little prayer at dinner or lunch to thank God. They might have a prayer life, but they don't have a life of prayer. It's a very different thing. Trust is a moment-by-moment -moment choice. You've heard people say, you're going to have to earn my trust. That's a ridiculous statement. Trust is yours. You give it or you don't. Are you waiting for God to prove that he can be trusted? Your trust is yours. You give it away or you hold on to it. My dream for you in 2020 and 2021 is that you would be immersed in a culture of church that calls you to cultivate and condition your soul to learn the habit of trusting God with your life, even in the midst of a, like a, um, you know, kind of like a, I don't, I don't know, um, a pandemic? 
Is there, has there been a better opportunity to condition our soul to trust God in the last century than right now? No. 2020 and 2021 has given us an opportunity to trust God in a global pandemic and in our own little world of discomfort, frustration, and difficulty. Our annual theme, it can only be good, is not a trick Pollyanna phrase to help you deny the reality of trouble and pain. It is, however, offering a firm foundation when nothing makes sense and everything seems against you. It provides a phrase of grounding. It's a centering phrase. And when you use it, you're not using it believing or imagining there is no trouble and there is no pandemic and there is no crisis. Or you're recognizing the trouble, but you're anchoring yourself in the reality like Job, like Paul, like Jesus, that God can be trusted when things are bad to ultimately bring good. Listen to Job affirm his trust in God in the early stages of his suffering when nothing made sense and everything seemed against him. This is what he says. I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. A couple chapters later, before all his friends, or as all his friends arrive, he says these words, even if God kills me, I will still trust him. What an unbelievable statement. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? It sounds like a person deluded. But don't be fooled. Job didn't just naturally have this disposition. Over 42 chapters and a long, long time, maybe years, some commentators tell us, Job learned the, this disposition of trust in God. Then listen, as after years perhaps of this kind of suffering and friends coming from a variety of places, over years of suffering this loss, Job develops and builds this sense of what it means to trust God and listen to his final position. In chapter 42, as Job takes as a lesson from God, which is a lesson for us. Job 42.1, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You ask, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things too far, too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I know you for myself. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. More and more of my life, I find that I am taking back everything I said <laughs> and just sitting in a disposition, a posture of repentance, recognizing that day in and day out, I have so many times throughout the day not trusted God. So many times through the month, 
just not trusted God. You may be right here, right now, in where you're watching or in this sanctuary, and you may be questioning whether or not God can be trusted. I want you to know, this is an example of a person trusting God, that God is good even when life is bad. That God is good even when life is bad. The Bible doesn't take a Pollyanna approach and it doesn't take a pessimistic approach. It boldly reveals the harsh environment of this world and equally so the hope of God in it. Our theme this year, it can only be good, could easily sound Pollyanna, excessively positive, as if HCC is some kind of denial cult. Any reasonable read of the New Testament shows that Christianity is not a denial cult and that Paul, Job, Jesus were not Pollyannas, nor were they pessimist. Our annual theme is not Pollyanna. Our annual theme is not pessimistic. It's positivity in perspective. I love that. Let's put that on the screen. Positivity in perspective. Would you hold on to that? That you, I'm giving you permission to come up out of the pessimistic ditch or get up out of the Pollyanna ditch and come to the middle in recognizing that Romans 8.28 is positivity in perspective. You can hurt deeply, feel intensely, but still trust the rock-solid reality that God is for you. And ultimately, it is will be good. This is positivity in perspective. Jesus, the ultimate anti-Pollyanna, said that in this world you will have trouble. In this world they will hate you when you follow my way. And that there would be trouble of all kinds. That this burden, this world's burden, sinfulness in this world's complexity will be really heavy. But he also says this. Listen to these words. They're for you today. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on life? Come to me. Get away with me. And you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me. And you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Wow. Jesus expected folks to be tired. He expected folks to be worn out. He expected folks to be burned out on this broken world. But then he offers a different way to live as the storm rages all around. A way to live when life tires you out, when life wears you out, when life burns you out. He didn't say that if you follow him, you won't cry. He didn't say that if you follow him, you won't yell. He didn't say that if you follow him, you won't sigh or feel oppressed or feel sad. He said that these things or feelings don't have the power over you. Unless you give it to them. You see, Steve, you don't understand my circumstances. What I do understand from Job, from Jesus, and Paul 
is that in the context of the swirling storm of circumstances around you, you either give the storm the power or you keep the power between you and Jesus. Because when you keep the power between you and Jesus, you can simply slip down into the hold of the ship and take a nap with him. Rest with him. On the storm of life, Jesus is always at peace and rest. He's never frantically running around the deck, freaking out. He's where he needs to be in your life, and it only comes through you cultivating that relationship with him of trust. And when you trust, you can rest in Jesus. So even in the worst circumstance, when they give you the opportunity to grimace in pain, cry in grief, yell in frustration, shrink in fear, right there in the eye of the storm raging all around you, Jesus invites you to trust him with your life. Christianity is Jesus inviting you to rest while the world all around you is restless. This is where Paul draws all of his eighth chapter of Romans from. The way of Jesus became Paul's way, and it can become your way, just to show you that Paul, like Job, knew hardship and trust in God all the same. Let's take one look before we close today at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And also contrast that with Romans 8. This is what, how Paul describes his life. I've worked much harder, been jailed more often, beaten up more times than I can count, at death's door time after time. I've been flogged five times with the Jews, 39 lashes, beaten by Roman rods three times, pummeled with rocks. I've been shipwrecked three times and immersed in the open sea for a night and a day. In hard traveling year in and year out, I've had to ford rivers, fend off robbers, struggle with friends, struggle with foes. I've been at risk in the city, at risk in the country, endangered by desert sun and sea storm, and betrayed by those who I thought were my brothers. I've known drudgery and hard labor, many a long and lonely night without sleep, many a missed meal, blasted by the cold, naked to the weather, and that's not the half of it when you throw the daily pressures and anxieties of all the churches. When someone gets to the end of his rope, I feel the desperation in my bones. It's just like your last week, right? Have you ever felt desperation in your bones? I know that you could probably write a paragraph similar to that paragraph that Paul wrote. But Paul, like Job, like you, was no stranger to hardship in this hard world. But he, like Job, like you, was not a citizen of this world. That's why he can say, it can only be good. Romans 8, 28. Listen carefully. And we know that God causes 
everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Even those shipwrecked, even those lost at sea, even those swirling in the disappointment of non-promotion, even those suffering divorce, even those with a terminal illness diagnosis, even those who's got children astray, even those who are struggling with pain and suffering and difficulty and bad car batteries and and broken HVACs in your house, all of that, all of that, he is saying, is working together for the good. Even though you can't see the big picture, it's all working together. Verse 31, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't, we also, won't he also give us everything else? Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us? If we have trouble or calamity, our HVAC goes out, we get a bad health diagnosis, we're struggling with our failing eyesight, we're struggling in our conflict in our marriage, our kids aren't obeying us. Does it mean he doesn't love us when we're persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Say it with me. No! Come on! No! Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Would you stand up? Goodness! How can we not but celebrate, raise our voice, recognize His goodness for you that love Him more than you love this world? And all of the pain and suffering that goes along with it. And all of the riches and goodness that goes along with it. For you that love him. 